You there, Ginger? I'm here. In a place like New Orleans, uh, when I started here and, you know, the director of the service at the time, you know, one of the first things she told all the new hires, she was like, you know, I hope you got your crap together. Sean said he looked over and I kind of looked over and saw that the younger brother had, you know, supine on his back and he was just watching us, you know, work on his brother who was, who was dying and pr- practically dead at that point. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. This is a podcast where I try my best to dive into the minds of medics. And if I ask the right questions and listen carefully, they also let me probe into their hearts. Make sure you listen until the end of the episode because Tanya Glenn is back with a touching message. In this episode, I talked to a 20-year medic from New Orleans. His name is John McCarthy, and he recently wrote a book called Hard Roll. He's an example of what I hope our EMS authors will be. He's honest, captivating, without being overly dramatic. Works of art, like a book, are tools for understanding ourselves as individuals and as a collective profession. This episode is a reminder that we should cheer on the artists within our ranks, the authors, cartoonists, photographers. The idea is not to relate to everything they create. Instead, the point is to hold up one person's perspective, compare it to your own, and in that process, understand ourselves in a new way. Listen in as I interview John about his art and his life as a New Orleans medic. Well, I have to uh, chase one thing down, and that is my eight-year-old daughter loves graphic novels, comic strips. I'm wondering if you would ever consider making an EMS graphic novel, and do you know if one exists? I'm not familiar of one, but I actually did a version of what you're talking about in around 2009. Actually, um, in the book, if you, I'm not sure how far you've gotten into it, but... One of the earlier chapters is called Cern's Pound of Flesh. For those who haven't read the book, it's uh, Sean Cerny was my partner at the time. He was assigned to me as a new trainee with the city of New Orleans. And I, we quickly became friends and, and are now best friends. You know, I'm the godfather to his, to his little boy. He and I have become really close. But uh, during our time on, on the ambulances, we were a couple of years into our partnership. And uh, we both realized that we love comic books. We love horror stories and similar types of music. We have a lot in common. And I was writing at the time. And wasn't quite sure where I was going to go with writing. So I originally started writing movie scripts um, without realizing that there is 0% chance of ever getting one of those things done. So, you know, I was like, well, man, I've always loved comics. Let me try a comic book. So Sean and I decided, hey, man, we can set aside a little bit of money out of our paychecks and we can create our own publishing. So we started this uh, thing called Mass Casualty Comics. That's why people follow me on Twitter. It's John Mass Casualty. And that goes back from those days. People think maybe I'm just some wacko medic who enjoys carnage but it's that was the name of our quote-unquote publishing company and we did a comic book at the time it was called hungry for stink and (laughs) it was a it was a comedy Uh, and the setting was new orleans is there's this big explosion in new orleans and this biological agent is released and it turns everyone into zombies and you have two types of zombies you have um, smart zombies we called which are ones that retain their human intelligence and then you have these rotters, which are your walking dead type zombies. You know, there were some EMS uh, themes to that comic. That was the closest I ever came to doing that. But I would actually, 
I would be down to do uh, to write something like that. You know, that's kind of the goal is I'm writing the nonfiction and with the always have in the back of my mind this hope that I, that this type of writing will get me to the point of where I can do more creative writing. And I really like comics a lot, so I would love to write comics. You said in an interview with Brett Schneider of Words Off the Street, you said that you think if people are going to be writing nonfiction, they should be 100% committed to it being accurate. Mm-hmm. Why is that an important standard? Um, I mean, I tell the story in the my book um, about the um, Chris Kyle book, American Sniper. You know, they made the movie about it and all of that. And, uh, you know, this poor guy, he was an American hero. He's a war hero, legitimate guy. His accomplishments on the battlefield were in question. It kind of came out after, and he wound up dying tragically. I'm not sure if your listeners know this, his story, but they can look into that. I won't, I won't get into it too much. It was, it was pretty tragic. You know, after he passed away, or before he passed away, actually, there were some things that came out where he was he told some stories, and people were starting to question the legitimacy of and the honesty of what he was saying. And then it's kind of come back, and a lot of the stuff was, um, I don't know, debunked or whatever. You know, it was proven that kind of some of the stuff he was saying happened didn't necessarily happen. Right. It's incredibly important for me to, if I'm reading something specifically nonfiction, it's very important for me, and I believe that the relationship that the author has with the reader is fully based on um on the reader being able to trust what they're reading, you know, unless you kind of go out ahead of time and say, Hey, you know, I'm taking some liberties here. You know, I felt a lot of responsibility, you know, it's kind of self-imposed, but I felt a lot of responsibility of, of presenting what EMS is like, at least my, through my experiences, I wanted it to be something that obviously fellow first responders would read, but also maybe people who don't do this for a living and get an insight into what it's really like. And I just felt like by uh, fabricating stories or, um, over dramatizing things, it would just, in the long run, that's doing that. That's not the right thing for me to do. That's kind of me, um, you know, not fully embracing the responsibility that I felt like I had in telling these types of stories. You were committed to that depth of honesty and authenticity, and do you think that that is good for EMS? Do you think it, as a profession, you you talked about, you know, the audience may be non EMS people that are trying to understand even what we do. And I get what I'm asking you is a hard question. Do you think it's good for the profession to be that honest? I do. I do. Um, I love this profession. I think a lot of people who get into it get into it for the right reasons and love it. But I also uh, feel, you know, I've been this is 20 years now, I've been in this line of work. I feel like there's a bit of a disservice. Sometimes people are sold a false bill of goods and maybe some of the the truth of what's involved with this job as far as the mental health tolls that everyone is inevitably going to be paying at some point. Those kind of get um, glossed over a bit or, or completely hidden or not disclosed up front. It was like we were talking about a moment ago. I mean, I don't, I feel like getting into this line of work, everyone getting into it should clearly know what they're getting into because there's a lot at stake. I'm afraid that it happens too many times. And, you know, we don't have, <clears throat> as a profession and as a society, I don't think that we have enough in place and enough is being done to offset the damage that is being done to the men and women who do this type of work for a period of time. You know, sometimes the the truth is ugly, you know, but um, I, I felt equally responsible to present this in what I perceived as the way that this type of work really is. The general public reading it and people, have, you know, they reached out to me. I mean, I've had someone, tell, you know, one lady that stands out in my mind, she, she contacted me and said, you know, I love the book. I read it. And afterwards, I felt like I should just go find some first responder and give him a hug. <laughs> you know? yeah. And I'm like, yeah. man, well, you know, that's that's true. I mean, 
unfortunately, all the stuff that we just had happen um, in, in Vegas the other day. You know, I mean, those were checks that were written that evening on all those first responders and, and obviously all the folks that, are, that experienced it. But I'm speaking specifically on first responders. Every one of those people wrote a check that night that eventually they're going to have to ca- they're going to have to pay it. I tweeted a long time ago. I just saw this. It popped up in a memories thing the other day. And it, I believe this is, you know, PTSD is uh, the results of the human eyes um, in the human being experiencing and seeing things that the human brain isn't meant to see and do for a long period right. of time. And okay. so, yeah, I think, you know, that, that type of honesty and getting that sort of dialogue hopefully opened and it's happening a lot. You know I mean? That's from what I've been able to research. Canada seems to be pretty on the, uh, on the ball about addressing these issues. Um, and you know, there's a lot of people doing good work on it. I just think it could be, it could go a lot further. So I felt absolutely no obligation to gloss over or to present some sunshine, butterflies and rainbows approach of a profession. That's anything but that, you know, you, did an interview. It was an interesting interview I found with a nurse from KTRU at Rice University interviewed you. It was during EMS week. And in that interview, you were really candid and, and honest. That And you talked about how the entire time you were in the field, you thought you were immune to these ill effects of EMS on your mental health. And then as you started writing the book, you actually had physiological problems that emerged. Can you say more about that process for you or what you made of all that yeah uh, well I, I still I don't think I've still quite figured it out <laughs> figured it out yet I still suffer a little bit of these I don't know you know um I don't know what you'd even call it like you know my personal experience was I didn't realize that I really had anything going on until I honestly it was when I started writing this book and started kind of realizing that you know some of the stories in here I didn't remember I mean again going back to what we said earlier it was important for me to present these and retell them as as accurately and as honestly as they could but some of them I just didn't remember so I went to Sean you know and first I was writing a book that he was going to be on every freaking page practically so I went to him and said hey this is what I'm planning to do you know are you cool with it and of course he was supportive and then um we kind of sat down and said you know we worked together for six years that's pretty uncommon in this field to have a partner that long and uh I was like what what's which what should I talk about what's which calls you know in particular and he would recite you know a couple. There's one in particular in here. Two brothers get shot. They're kids, um, and one of them dies, you know, on the stretcher. And the other ones, they were both shot, but one of them was stable and just like a leg wound or something. And the other one was a lot more critical. And the the younger brother was on the on the bench seat. We had him lying flat, and we had the older brother who was still teenager, you know, on the stretcher, and he was pretty messed up. And uh, he wound up, you know, dying, coding and and on the way to the hospital and it was me and a resident, you know, emergency medicine resident was on the scene with us. And if she was riding in and doing the, you know, intubations and chest decompressions, the whole nine yards. And, um, Sean said he looked over and I kind of looked over and saw that the younger brother had, you know, he was lying on his, you know, supine on his back and he was just watching us, you know, work on his brother who was, who was dying and practically dead at that point. Mm -hmm. And Sean told him, you know, Hey, look away, kid. You don't want to see this. And he told me, he said, you should write that story. I was like, I wasn't on that call. He was like, no, you were on that call. I was like, dude, I'm telling you, I wasn't on the call. And he would, he started going, continuing to talk. It was like these, almost like a firework, these little pop of the vision that would expand out where I would actually, you know, memory would come back. And uh, then I remember then I was like, man, I'd completely shut that out. So I was, I was writing the book. I was having, I just started having a lot of, uh, I'll say physiologic problems. I mean, I'm, 
nightmares, you know, worrying about, um, and I never had nightmares on this when I was on the ambulances ever, never. I mean, I have all these horrible calls I've experienced always felt like I was immune to it because it never bothered me. I never needed a break after a call or never had nightmares or never woke up or nothing horrible, you know, writing this, that's kind of stuff started kicking off. Nightmares always worrying that something was going to happen to my, you know, I have two kids, two sons, and I always felt like if I wasn't around them, something horrible was going to happen to them. And I started having a lot of like GI issues, you know, just stomach upset stuff. And, you know, around the same time, um, I, I was working on the book, one of the medics I'd worked with forever and, uh, everybody in New Orleans was really close with a guy named Frank Petta. He, the book is, a uh, he's one of the people that I dedicated the book to. He was diagnosed with cancer and uh, unfortunately lost his fight with that. But, um, so Frank was sick at the time and I started having all this stuff going on in my head and I was starting to think that I had something similar, you know, had some terminal illness, you know, so just, you know, I'd get these aches and my back would, a side of my back would go numb. You know, I've never had a panic attack, you know, like your typical, you had a 911 call for somebody having an anxiety attack and they're to kipnick and breathing fast and freaking yeah. out. Never had that. So I was like, I can't be having anxiety because I'm not having any sort of, <laughs> you know, freaking out like that. Half my back would go numb and, you know, my brain was telling me, and never done this before, but I start processing all this information. It's like having freaking WebMD for a brain where you overthink everything and like backs numb. Oh, well, you've got brain cancer. That's what mm-hmm. my, you know what I'm saying? I think, <laughs> and I've come to find out that a lot of people in this type of work have that same thing. But I'd never had that stuff before. And all that kind of stuff started happening over the course of writing this book, kind of after it was done. And I didn't have to constantly go because I spent a lot of time with this thing. You know, you write something like this and then you're editing it and polishing it and rewriting it and working on it constantly over the course of a couple of years. And once I was finally done with it, then all this stuff kind of eased off. I still have it a little bit every once in a while, but usually it's involved when I start when I start getting back into this book. As much as I love this book and as proud of it as I am, a part of me hates it. And I don't, you know, I don't ever want to you know, mess with it anymore. Was it you when we first spoke that you told me that you, you would read, but you really didn't want to? Yeah, that was kind of, you know, the book is, it, it kind of took shape originally. I think maybe even subconsciously, I realized that this was going to be a problem because when I first set out to write it, my initial, my original intention was I was going to write a book that was going to be funny um, because Sean and I had a lot of really funny experiences, you know, and a lot of those are in the book and, but that was the original intention. But again, I, that feeling of responsibility about portraying this profession. Exact kind of what we're saying earlier. I didn't want to write a book that was just funny stories because that's not what this job is like. You know, I always, always call it bipolar. You know, it's one call you'll get is maybe funny. And the next call you get is something horrible. The funny stories, I don't, don't bother me as much. The way it kind of turned out was every chapter is a call. I wanted to give a reader, especially someone who's not in EMS or not a first responder, kind of an insight into that, quote, bipolar, unquote, um, nature of this job. So one chapter that reads really heavy, kind of dark stuff, and then the next one will be funny. And it just turned out, formatting-wise, where it turned out to be about half the stories I wound up with were funny ones, and the other half were the the darker ones, you know. So the thing about not liking to read kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about I love the book and I'm proud of it, but also part of me doesn't want to dive back into that because I know, you know, it's like you make it out of this pathway and you close the door behind you and you, you've just circumnavigated all that dark stuff that's in there. And the last thing you want to do is take it for another spin. You know, the funny yeah. stories, however, I don't, I don't, I don't have a problem reading those cause they're really freaking funny and they're positive memories, but that darker stuff, that was when I did uh, Susan Larson's that NPR show. 
she had me read a passage from it. And, you know, as I was reading it, I started feeling, like I said, that back numbness and just that kind of mm. sweaty palm, you know, shaking foot, you know, those little micro sure. symptoms that, hey, man, you're starting to tread back into some stuff you probably don't want to get back into, you know. So after that, I was like, you know, gosh, you know, and the publisher even asked me, they were like, hey, do you want to do an audio versions of it? And I'm like, you can do whatever you want, but I won't be reading it. So naturally, at this point, I asked him to read. This is a passage from the chapter um, Muddy Mississippi. The sun was setting as the end of the detail approached. We believe that making it through an entire detail shift without getting a single call was a victory worthy of celebrating. So, just before the end, Sean decided to grab some dinner. He said he planned on addressing this girlfriend situation when we got off, and he didn't want to do it on an empty stomach. If there is one universal truth that I have learned in all my years in EMS, it's that if you want to get a call, attempt to get something to eat. I knew we were pushing our luck with the EMS call gods, but Sean's relationship logic was sound. It didn't take long to find an ideal spot on the fringes of the quarter. I had eaten earlier, so I remained in the truck while he went in. After a few minutes, Sean climbed back in the driver's seat empty-handed. That was quick. What'd you wolf down, I asked. Nah, I just put my order in. They said it should be ready in a few. You put your order in? Dude, we get off in like five minutes, I said. Now, if you were in this situation, your brain would probably go for a burger or slice of pizza. Maybe a little shawarma if you felt the need to heed the call of fanciness. Sean's brain followed a different path of judgment. He opted for a full curry goat dinner. To go. A full dinner with side dishes and all. An excellent choice, since most places obviously keep their curry goat on the standby, right? Believe it or not, we actually made it through the prolonged wait time for him to get his food. He had sat in the ambulance for a few minutes before opting to go back inside and wait. I really thought we were going to defy the odds and get away call-free when I saw him emerge from the restaurant with a plastic bag full of containers. I was watching him through the side mirror when the radio vomited the call tones into my ear. There are five stages involved in the grieving process. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. In the span of around five seconds, I watched Sean emotionally transition through each one in the mirror above the words objects are closer than they appear. As he climbed back into the ambulance and acknowledged dispatch, he seemed to be caught in a mixture of anger and acceptance. Of course, I laughed. Dispatch advised us that we were the closest unit to a possible 2729S attempted suicide with a man in the river. It was almost as if the call gods had been rolling a bunch of little dingleberry-sized calls into one gigantic turd ball to dump on us at the end. The only upside was that it sounded like a real emergency, so on came the lights and sirens and off we went without complaint. However, when we arrived on the scene a few minutes later, that whole real emergency aspect waned quickly. Sean and I were both trained in swiftwater rescue and were mentally prepared to attempt a rescue in the water. We knew that a person could only survive the powerful currents of the Mississippi River for a short amount of time, so as we got on scene, Sean slammed the ambulance and park on the wharf and we both rushed out. We didn't have the proper equipment for a water rescue, but the fire department had also been dispatched and they carried some of the stuff so we could use. We rushed down to the water's edge to try to locate the patient before the mighty river rushed him away. As we made it to the rock levee that led down to the river's edge, we were breathing heavily from a mixture of adrenaline and the exertion of carrying all the medical equipment. We were met by a police officer who was standing on the rocks. 
arms folded over his chest, and a very unimpressed, slightly disgusted face on his uh, expression on his face. What's up, man? Where's our patient? I asked in frantic confusion. Casually, he turned back to the water and aimed his flashlight. There he was, our patient, 50 feet from the shore in the, quote, river, unquote. The problem was that to successfully commit suicide by jumping into the Mississippi River, you sort of want to check the tide tables. Our patient obviously had failed to do this and was stuck chest deep in the mud a good distance away from the actual water. If that wasn't enough of a problem, as soon as the police officer's flashlight found him, he came alive. He cussed us with his arms flailing, middle fingers extended, and torso twirling. I have a feeling it was supposed to be a full-body declaration, but his lower half was too firmly entrenched for full expression. Awesome, I said in a tone directly opposite of the meaning of the word. Sure, it's funny now, and it may have been funny then had it not been for the fact that we were the ones who were going to have to go out there and get him. He was in range for me to throw a rope, but I could tell that he wasn't going to cooperate with that. I thought about a boat, but he was too far from the actual water, and I didn't feel comfortable leaving him unattended for a time it would take us to get a skiff on scene. We were obligated to help this man. After a moment of silent deliberation, we realized there was no way around it. We dropped the equipment we had been carrying and chose to take only the spine board with us. Sean opted for the rush in and let's get this crap over with approach. Well, I took the wiser tactic of removing everything perishable from my pockets. We met at the bottom of the rock levee and decided to follow the patient's path out, which wasn't very hard to locate. Damn it, dude, Sean said with prophetic doom. Come on, let's get it over with, I said as I stepped out onto the mud. I should probably mention that the Mississippi River mud stinks, both figuratively and quite literally. The smell is primarily sealed by the surface, and when things like footsteps break that surface, a little more stink is released upon the stepper. I was foolishly optimistic after making it a good 10 to 15 feet out from the rocks. I was still on top of the slick surface, and my boots were only sinking in just above the soles. So far, so good, I thought, as I cautiously proceeded outwards towards the patient. Sean was on my left as we took one cautious step after another. That's when I heard the rhythmic buzzing coming from his pants. Sean's frustration from a day full of a nagging girlfriend, medication side effects, knowing his curry goat was going to be cold and getting dispatched on this call after we had technically gotten off had caused him to forget to leave his perishables on the rocks. As his cell phone began to buzz on silent mode, we paused for a moment for him to check the phone and then move it to higher ground in the form of a breast pocket. God, dude, can't you take a hint? He complained as he dropped the phone into his shirt pocket. Why didn't you leave that back there? Your phone's going to get ruined, I said as I took another step forward. That was the moment that the little luck we still had left, left us. My foot came down on the mud surface and kept going down. I guess we had reached the, quote, deep end, quote, before I realized that I was mid-thigh up in the wet nastiness. Oh, man. Sean began to laugh. He was right beside me and was suddenly three feet taller than I was. I remember looking at his feet, which were still on the surface and thinking, how was this possible? Sean is, or was at that time, a fairly rotund fellow and had at least a hundred pounds on me. Yet here I was, the one who had been partially swallowed into the river's bowels. As the injustice of the situation set in, Sean's laughter bordered on what I would characterize as crazed. It was short-lived because, before I could verbally counterattack, he began to descend slowly. So slowly, in fact, that he continued to laugh before realizing what was happening. It wasn't until he was mid-shin deep before reality set in on him. Oh man, he echoed. 
Now it was my turn to laugh as karma balanced the scales. My sudden mirth only increased as Sean refused to accept his fate and tried to run forward in a panic. I have no idea what possessed him to do this, but I'm glad he did. You see, your depth in the mud is also exponentially proportionate to the amount of suction it generates. Running through it is not an option. Sean learned this when the mud seized both of his legs, making him fall forward. His upper torso splattered softly as it made contact with the slop. His arms went out in reflex to catch himself, and they too were hungrily swallowed. The thickness of the mud saved him from being fully consumed, but with all the spitting and cussing he was doing, I'm pretty sure some of it got into his mouth. I would give anything to have a video recording of him falling into that mud because it may have been the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. I'm not going to sit here and write that I peed a little from laughing so hard, but I am an honest man, so I won't fully deny it either. By this point, I was nearly crotch deep, so there was no proof. The audio of the tumble was nearly as priceless as the visual. Sean made a noise that was a squeal that mixed panic, fear, anger, and disgust all rolled into one pathetic sound. Hell, I even think our entrenched suicidal patient started laughing at him. This had to be one of the rare situations when the obstacles and immediate circumstances made us temporarily forget that we were on a call. It became all about getting a foot free, taking the next step, and reaching your destination. We probably should have fallen back and waited for water rescue equipment because even though we were technically weren't in the water, it was really dangerous. However, we were too close to our goal and we continued to trudge forward slowly. Karma, however, wasn't quite done with Sean. To move through the mud, you have to work each leg free to take the next step. Each of those attempts required a lot of effort and was accompanied by a slurping sound as the mud resisted your foot's freedom. Sean was having more trouble than I was and had fallen slightly behind. I had just gotten a leg free and I was plunging forward. I was stopped by a small yelp of terror from the CERN. Dude, it's got my boot. It got my boot, he yelled, his voice saturated in panic. When I turned back, I saw him balancing precariously with one clean, white-socked foot hovering above the brown mud. He was wobbling heavily, and I knew this battle would soon be lost. That foot looked like a treed cat on a breaking limb beset by a pack of hungry, circling dogs. This was one of the rare times when I took no sadistic pleasure from my buddy's misfortune. I actually felt bad for him at this point, never more so than when I saw his relatively clean sock sink slowly below into the muddy depths. Ooh, I moaned sympathetically. I'm pretty sure Sean recited every profanity in the English language in the few seconds it took him to reach down and pull his boot free. Nearly every inch of his body was covered in wet, stinky mud at this point. It was when he became one boot cerned that the transformation from the nervous little man to angry little man occurred. To his credit, he continued forward with me holding one boot. As we neared the patient, we could smell the alcohol from a few feet away. He was still writhing around, but wasn't accomplishing anything other than a pig-like wallowing. He was a brown, wet mess with the exception of his eyeballs and mouth. He was initially very combative, but after a few stern words to let him know we had reached a zero tolerance for his tomfoolery, he opted to dial it down to simply sulking and being uncooperative. This was the best we could handle, and it allowed us to get him onto the spine board and start dragging him to land. Sean was radiating murderous fury at this point, and no doubt this patient was sober enough to realize it would be a good idea to ease up a bit. I'm, I'm super happy that in the long run that I got them all out onto the page, and it'll be out there forever, and that people can read this, because it, it has really, um, at least from the feedback I've, re I've received thus far, it really has kind of uh, 
help some people, which is cool. And given a lot of that insight, you know, it's accomplished the goals that I wanted to accomplish. I mean, when I wrote it, or at least I had kind of three goals, you know, you have the goal for your fellow medics and your fellow first responders, you know, that's always going to be your most critical audience. So, you know, you wanted those people to be able to read it and, and enjoy it and not, you know, tear it apart like we are prone to do with movies and books and TV shows and stuff. And then the other book was for the it, more administrative stuff. Cause kind of at the end of the book, I mean, I kind of do take the task. Some of the way I feel like the, the EMS in general is, is mismanaged and um, some of the disservices that are being done to the medics by chewing them up and spitting them out and, and not worrying about, you know, what happens in their, to their heads and doing this work. And then the third audience was obviously people who, who have no experience in this field. And my intentions for them were to kind of give this sort of insight and give them a better understanding. Cause a lot of people still walk around with that whole ambulance driver perception of EMS. I always tell people I was in the coast guard, you know, I'm a coast guard veteran, but EMS is a lot like the coast guard. And, you know, when you start talking about military branches, it's always army, Navy, air force, Marines. Right. Oh, oh, and the Coast Guard. You're used to that out, outcast role. <laughs> it's never really, you know, lit my underwear on fire like it does some people. But I felt that this book could hopefully could, could create a better awareness. All of those three groups who I spoke about from the administrative side and the, the fellow first responders and the general public, everyone has responded in the way that it was. I was intending them I was intending the book to be received by them. So that's been awesome. You know, I think you've hit a home run with it. I, it's it's great that you've reached your personal goals and that it's also helping other people too. Besides the book itself, which is a huge gift to paramedic students. Um, any other advice you might give to like a brand new paramedic? Yeah. Um, and uh, this might sound a little weird for some people to hear, but um, I would, and I have told folks who are getting into this field until some things change, um, the way it's done, I'd say get into it with an exit strategy. Um, I think you can safely do this work. I mean, it all, you know, it all depends on where you're at. You know, I originally started, my training was all out right outside of Tallahassee, Florida. So that's a lot more of a rural service. Tallahassee itself runs some calls, but the little counties outside of there is just a lot slower. Your exposure is exponential related to your location. You know, in a place like New Orleans, um, when I started here in, in 97, you know, the director of the service at the time, you know, one of the first things she told all the new hires, she was like, you know, I hope you got your crap together because a year here is the equivalent of five years experience anywhere else. And yeah, that's pretty accurate. I think the amount of calls that you're going to run and the type or quality of call you're going to run, you're going to get exposed to the whole textbook pretty quick. If, if a new medic is coming into a service like this, I always say, man, it's an incredible skill set. You're going to learn skills that are incredibly beneficial and valuable that more people should possess, not just besides the medical um, knowledge, but, you know, the ability to handle chaos and all the other things that come in with this type of work. But um, I'm, I'm just really getting tired of seeing really ambitious, altruistic young people get into this field and then seeing them years down the road and they're just chewed up and burnt and God knows what sort of demons they're going to be dealing with in the future. I think it's impossible to do this job as a career without it um, affecting you permanently and changing you. I mean, I don't know anyone, and I ask this to people all the time, I, I do not know anyone who has done this type of work, and that's police, you know, firefighters maybe a little less because they don't really do that much, <laughs> <laughs> police or like a metropolitan area medic. 
I've never spoken to anyone who, if you ask them, or if you asked anyone that they're close to before they started doing this work, is this the same person a couple years into it that what that they were before they started doing it? They're not. They're going to get changed, and some of those changes are for the better uh, as far as uh, their psyche and their personality, but a lot of it's not. I originally was going to be a cop. You know, my father was a police officer in, right outside Tallahassee, and that was my original goal when I went in the Coast Guard. I was going to get into law enforcement. I remember uh, witnessing that with him, you know, and this was a rural sheriff's department. And I just remember seeing his personality change, you know, where he got really cynical, didn't trust many people and, mm-hmm. you know, all that comes with that. EMS is the same stuff, you know, to a different extent. The stressors are, are equal but different. I tell them all, man, getting it. And, you know, they, nobody listens. I wouldn't have listened if someone told me that. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, old guy, you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, I mean, God, I love this field. So I'm, it's definitely not me bad-mouthing it at all. It just some of the things, some of the damage done is un. Uh, it's hard to correct that. I think you're onto something. I, it's kind of like the cumulative effects. So if you could do it for a period of time, um, but at some point, because of the just the hours and the years, um, be ready in case you need to to jump over to something else. Yeah, and look, I'll be the I'll be the first to say as well that um I think a lot of I want to say a lot, but a, a some of this stuff can be mitigated. I think as we get a better understanding of mental health care and as agencies become more proactive and start doing prophylactic measures to prevent some of this damage. I think that'll help in the long run. But as of right now, that stuff's not being done as much. And unfortunately, you know, we've had, you know, um, what's it, 16 years now of perpetual warfare. So we're getting a lot of good uh, sample studies for veterans coming back. Um, Being a first responder and a combat veteran are similar in the sense that the, the eventual destination that you're going to arrive that is the same thing in your mind, um, because I think both things you're doing thing. I don't I don't believe that the human brain was designed or is still currently meant to register the amount of stuff that we see in this field. Most people I talk to, I'm like, what where do you feel like the window is? And they say that three to five year range. After that, it's starting to you're starting to get some rewiring you know upstairs Mm -hmm. going on you know and so that's what i tell new medics i'm like man do it pay attention study hard and but have an exit plan and the other thing i tell them is obviously know what you're doing you know this is a serious job well that's good advice about the exit strategy and i i can't disagree with it i wish it were different but it's not mostly i appreciate your honesty about it and your honesty about your own process of because somebody that's been doing it for a long time Maybe exactly where you were in that spot where um, you thought you were immune, thought you had escaped, you know, any harm, and then something starts happening and uh, you sharing your story will hopefully help them understand themselves better. So I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. That's that's one of the that's been one of the coolest things that I've experienced with this book is um, there's been a couple of instances where people who have reached out to me and said, hey, man, you know, thanks for writing this think it is important for exactly what you were saying i mean anyone who's experiencing that stuff you know don't don't let it get the best of you you know i mean i always liken it to being down in the hole saying that the rest of us you know have a responsibility responsibility to be the ladder for our fellows to help them get out of that if possible yeah that's been that's been really cool to experience and i hope that um you know more people can take a sense of comfort in knowing that you know i mean because look when i got into this field 
it was a lot like being in the service, you know, and it's still a lot like that in certain places, but that sort of um, fragility was looked at as weakness, and um, it was a very type A testosterone-driven profession where we bust each other's chops, and if you can't handle it, then you're not, you know, you're not cut out to be, and, and to a certain extent, that's that serves a purpose, but when it comes to people um, suppressing emotional responses for fear of ridicule, that's a little ridiculous, you know, and um, the good thing about it is if the profession is evolving to where that's not so much the case anymore and because so many people are having these issues that it can't be ignored as just a weak gene in certain medics, right. you know, or whatever. Well, thank you for talking with me. Thank you for reading a section of your book. Thanks for writing a book. I can't even imagine what that's like. It has its I, moments. I'm working on the next one now. The next one is gonna, not going to be all that. I'm not ex- going into those dark recesses of my mind. It's going to be EMS stuff, but it's going to be, be crazy stories and you know some funny, but just more of the wild stuff. I love it. Well, and, and like you said, you've created something lasting. You've created something now that is going to last longer than you, and that's that's got to be a good feeling. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, thanks thanks again. John, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me, Ginger. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I really appreciate it. All right. Take care. See ya. The weird thing is I don't even own a copy of the book. <laughs> yes, I'm reading it off my laptop screen. This was like the... Can we, can we buy up. John a book? Can we buy John, John's book? <laughs> I can get one myself. It's just a matter of, you know, every time I get one, I give it to somebody. You know. I understand that. Yeah. I told John I was impressed with his five-star rating on Amazon, and we talked about how hard we both work for the reviews that we get. A recent update to Apple's podcast app made it much easier to leave a review. So two requests of you. First, go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble and get a copy of John's book, Hard Roll. And second, go to iTunes and leave Medic Mindset a review. Those things are like gold to me. But yeah, you're right, man. Trying to get those reviews is, is tough. So anybody listen to this, please review Ginger's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this is Dr. Tanya Glenn, also known as the Warrior Healer and guest of Episode 8. Ginger dedicates this episode of Medic Mindset to the courageous first responders in Las Vegas. To those first responders, I just want to say that our hearts have been with you since the tragic events that unfolded on October 1st. Please understand that it is okay to ask for help. Seeking assistance after horrible events is a sign of resilience. We focus so much on physical fitness, but please don't forget your mental fitness as well. After Hurricane Harvey, we adopted the mantra, Texas Strong. You all are now Las Vegas Strong, and we love you and we stand with you.